episode of the anarchist experience episode 332 aka year seven week 30 uh coming at you this week solo show uh other co-host mc and ks are gallivanting about in south america somewhere so tis i the host of the show mr richie rich doing it alone uh long time listeners knows what that means uh, it means i get lazy because i like having conversations with people and when i get lazy uh, it just turns into Richie Rich reads the news. So let us just jump right into the headlines here. Uh, headline, why do some people support tyranny while others defy it? Uh, there is a fundamental question that haunts the pages of history, and it is one that has never been addressed in a satisfactory manner. There are many schools of thought on why and how tyranny rises in any given society, and all of them miss the mark in terms of explanations, primarily because they all allow their biases to rule their conclusions and blind them to the deeper aspect of power and conspiracy. In other words, they are willing to go down the rabbit hole only so far, and then they deny that the rabbit hole even exists. The common assumption when it comes to autocracy or oligarchy is that people are stupid and easily manipulated into following compelling personalities that make promises they never intend to keep. This is a foolish oversimplification. In truth, the level of manipulation needed to lure a majority of people into dictatorship is so complex that it requires an advanced understanding of human psychology. In our modern era, people cannot merely be ordered to submit at gunpoint, at least not right away. They must be tricked into conforming, and not only that, but they must be made to think that it was their idea all along. Without this dynamic of self-censorship and self-enslavement, the population will eventually rebel, no matter how oppressive the regime. A thousand-year tyranny cannot exist unless a number of people are conned into applauding it, or they directly benefit from it. And this is where we find the true key to totalitarianism. It only thrives because there is an inherent portion of any given society that secretly loves it and wants it to exist. We might call these people useful idiots, but it is much more than that. They are not necessarily unaware of what they are doing. They understand, to some extent, that they are helping in the destruction of other people's freedoms, and they revel in it. Sure, there are elitists and globalists that levy core conspiracies and seek out more and more control, but they are not but they could not accomplish much of anything without the aid of the army of sociopathic aberrations that live among us. This strange and destructive characteristic is ever visible today in light of the COVID lockdowns and the push for forced vaccinations. It is clear that there are some people out there who are overly concerned with their personal health decisions of everyone else. The science and the stats prove there is nothing for them to worry about from the virus, but they ignore the science. They thirst for the, t- the taste of power. They have become a cult which ignores all logic and demands fealty to their fraudulent narrative. They do not care about the facts. They only care that we comply. Well, as I have said time and time again, we will not comply. And so begins the epic conflict, a tale as old as civilization itself. There are two types of people in the world, those that want to control others and those that want to be left alone. But what motivates the control freaks? Why are they the way they are? Let's examine some of the causes. The fear engine. There are people that are driven by success, by merit, by hope, by prosperity, by faith, by optimism, by love, and by honor. And then there are people driven by fear. There are hundreds of various fears, but only a few ways to react to any of them. Collectivists respond to fear with a desperate need to micromanage their environment. 
They believe that if they can dictate people and events to a certain degree, they can eliminate unexpected outcomes and be free of fear. But life does not work this way, and it never will. The level of influence these people seek is so far beyond them that it can never be attained. That is to say, they will never be satisfied until they get more. Their fears were their fears will always haunt them because fear cannot be dealt with from without. They can only be dealt with from within. Furthermore, the things that fear often revolve around their own narcissism and, their own, and are of their own making. They fear failure, but they rarely work hard enough to succeed. They fear exposure, but only because they constantly lie. They fear conflict, but only because they are weak in body and character. They fear death because they believe in nothing greater than themselves. They clamor for dominance of their surroundings because they wrongly believe that they can cheat fate and the consequences of their own terrible choices. The safety of the mob. The issue of fear extends into the common mindset that totalitarian and how they find safety. The idea of standing on their own two feet and standing by their principles in the face of opposition is completely foreign to them. They avoid these situations at any cost and the notion of risk is abhorrent to them. So they, instead, look for a mob to blend into. This makes them feel safe in obscurity while also wielding force through collectivist action. They can feel powerful while at the same time being pitiful and weak. These people are almost always operate through large, single-minded groups that punish any dissension in the ranks, usually with gatekeepers that moderate the motivations of the hive. The mob itself is a weapon. Its only purpose beyond the comfort of its adherents is to destroy those people that do not hold the same beliefs or values as the controllers. There is no defensive purpose to the mob. It's an assassin's tool. It is a nuclear bomb. And we have seen in every modern dictatorship from the Bolsheviks in Russia to the fascists in Germany to the communists in Mao's China, the totalitarian mob is capable of murdering more people than any nuclear weapon in existence, all in the name of the greater good of the greater number. False piety in place of self-worth. All tyrants believe themselves to be righteous in their cause, even when they know their actions are morally abhorrent. I have seen the, this dynamic on bold display during the COVID mandates and the vaccine passports initiatives. Consider for a moment that 99.7% of the population is under no legitimate threat from the COVID virus. They will not die from it. And in the vast majority of cases, they will recover quickly from it. Yet the COVID cult consistently argues that people who refuse the mandates, the lockdowns, and the vaccines are putting others at risk, which is why we need to be forced to submit. Most of them know, according to the data, that COVID is not a threat, but the narrative gives them an opportunity to apply power through moral judgment. And so they lie, and they continue to lie about the data until they think the lie will be accepted as reality. This is a common aspect of most cults and fundamentalist religions that have gone astray. The habit of adherence to value lies over facts and evidence, not because they are trying to protect their faith, but because it affords them the chance to feel pious and superior to those they are determined to harm. Those who disagree are labeled heretics, the lowest of the low, the unwashed terrorists. The anti-mandate crowd is thus stripped of its humanity in this way and is painted as demonic. The people who want to remain free become monsters and the totalitarian monsters become heroes out to save the world. As author Robert Anton Wilson once said, the obedient always think of themselves as virtuous rather than cowardly. Next, the love of a cage. I feel as though I understand this mindset to an extent, but it never fails to shock me in the way in which people who scratch and scrape for power over others also seem to love being slaves to the system. I'm not so sure that it's ironic as authoritarianism does fulfill some of its promise of security as long as the people involved are willing to trade any impulses of liberty. If you do as you're told at all times and serve the system without fail, there is a good chance you will be able to hold on the meager necessities of survival. You will live a life, though probably not a happy one. For those that go above and beyond and cast aside all personal principles in order to further the goals of the system, they might even enjoy a modicum of wealth beyond their peers. You see, in a despotic society, the people who are most without honor are the people that are most rewarded. They don't need merit or accomplishment or skills or even brains. All they have to do is sell their souls to do whatever it takes to catch the eye of the oligarchy. They don't have to be good at anything. All they have to do is be evil, and for some people, that's easy. 
In this way, the system becomes a comfortable blanket that otherwise useless deviants can swaddle in. They wrap themselves in it and luxuriate in its warmth. They are not concerned with freedom because freedom feels cold to them. Freedom can be isolating and the existence of choice is terrifying. When all your choices are made for you, there is never any doubt or internal stress. All that is required is that you wake up each day and obey. For weak and ignorant people, subservience is a gift instead of a curse. They believe that a cage is meant to be gilded, not escaping from, and anyone that seeks escape must be crazy or dangerous. If free people exist, then these slaves are forced to question their own condition of their own compliance. So everyone must be enslaved to remove any and all doubt from society. The hive mind is placed above all else. The defiant and free. The little tyrants that infiltrate humanity probably look at liberty advocates as some kind of alien creature from far beyond the bounds of their universe. They just can't fathom how it is possible for someone to defy the system, to stand against the mob or the collective, even when they are outnumbered or when their risk is so high. They assume that it is a form of madness or lack of intelligence, for how could anyone smart think they have a chance of fighting back against the dictatorship? Liberty people are individualists by nature, but we also care about the freedoms of others. There is a common propaganda narrative that claims the individualists are selfish, but this is not the case at all. It is not enough for us alone to escape slavery. We will not stand by and watch others be forced into bondage either. We are willing to risk our lives, not just to save ourselves, but to save future generations from autocracy. As the, vac as the vaccine passports are manda and mandates continue to escalate, the totalitarians will find themselves even more bewildered because each new mechanism of control will result in even greater impetus for rebellion. And frankly, at this point, it is going to be us or them. They will not stop their pursuit of dominion and we will not comply, so we are at an impasse. Our two tribes cannot coexist within the same society, maybe not even the same planet. The truth is that if voluntarism was a valued ideal, then this whole fight could be avoided. If the collectivist cult was willing to accept the notion that they can choose to live in a highly micromanaged environment while others can choose to live independently, then there would be no crisis. We could easily go our separate ways. By this, but this is not how totalitarians think. To them, all people are chattel. We are property be, to be staked down and re-educated until we see the light. And if we don't see the light, then we are to be done away with and erased. This is why they are utterly to blame for the war that is coming. They cannot stop themselves from grasping for our throats and our minds. They are addicted to supremacy. They are living in a fever dream, and the only drug that cools their veins is total oppression of everyone around them. I see what is coming next, and it is not pretty for either side. But it will be especially gruesome for the collectivists, because they cannot imagine a scenario in which they lose. They are so certain of their preeminence and the safety of their self-imposed prisons that they will see failure as a phantom a ghost that cannot touch them. It would only take a handful of minor defeats to bring them down, but this requires freedom advocates to become more organized than they are now. The bottom line is this. Tyrannical systems are planned by elitist groups and governments, and it is they that benefit most from the destruction of public freedoms. It is indeed a conspiracy, and the pandemic lockdowns are, and forced vaccine response are no exception. However, Tyrannical systems could not be executed without the help of a larger psychopathic contingent of the population. And these people congregate together to make terrible things happen. It's as if they hear a silent dog whistle and totalitarianism rises, or they smell the blood of innocent victims in the air. Call them leftists, call them communists, call them collectivists, call them whatever you want, but know that the globalists are not our only concern. There is a wall of self-absorbed and power-hungry peons in the way, and they want whatever scraps they can get from the big boy's table. They are not oblivious. They have not been tricked into doing the things they do. They are a sad and pathetic bunch, but they are still dangerous in their ambition, and they will continue to slither out of the woodwork as the COVID agenda progresses. End of the article. This is the type of article where I think it's important to... How do I want to phrase this? Be flexible with principles, right? Because I don't think there's much to disagree with in the article. There are the useful idiots, the dullards, the dummies that stand in our way 
of accomplishing more freedom in our lives. And they are therefore our enemies. If you're a freedom lover, if you're a freedom lover, right? Anarchist, libertarian, freedom-minded individual, whatever, whatever side that, you know, you want to call that side of things. Um, and what I have claimed in the past is the, the problem with the libertarians, at least, is the strict adherence to certain moral principles that caused them to lose over and over and over again, right? Whereas if you see these people, you know, these op opposers of freedom, these pro-slavery individuals as your true enemy, uh, then you don't have to treat them the same necessarily as you would another pro-freedom lover, right? Like um, for those familiar with the non-aggression principle, the non-aggression non axiom, uh, to me, that is a, a, a principle of reciprocity, right? I will not do unto you so long as you extend the same courtesy to not do unto me, right? I will not aggress against you. However, if you aggress against me, I will be fully capable of defending myself against that aggression, right? And if you agree not to aggress against me, then, then we're cool. Uh, the problem is these, you know, these dullards, these dummies, these statists, uh, they will not extend that same courtesy to you, right? They have already made claims that they will not or made claims or uh, expressed it or demonstrated that they will not extend that same courtesy to you. Uh, at one point early on in my, you know, transition into anarchist, um, I had a, a similar conversation with my dad. And I said, well, you know, I've got this thing called the non-aggression principle. I, I think it's a good starting point. You know, would you agree to that? And he flat out said, no, I, I won't agree to that. I go, why not? Like, what can you think of a circumstance where you f think it would be, you know, the right thing to do to aggress against me? And his response was no, uh, but I don't want to close the door on that opportunity. Right. He, just because he couldn't think of a time now, he doesn't think that it's never uh, it's never immoral or reprehensible to aggress against someone like he he couldn't come up with an example, but he does think it's okay. And these people that they're that we're that we're talking about here, the the unwashed masses, as it were, they have a reason to aggress against you. They may not have had the opportunity to do it, but they have their reasons, and they have no moral opposition to doing it uh, should the opportunity or the time arise. And so you're constantly on the defensive when dealing with these people because in your mind, you have to extend them the courtesy of non-aggression, right? You have to act within that principle, even though they're already a threat. Um, and so one way, you know, one way to justify it is to say like, well, it's, it's self-defense. You know, I, I, I'm act, I am acting, you know, violently or whatever, um, out of preemptive self-defense. And I go, okay, great. I, I can accept that uh, if you actually act on it. And the, the important thing to know when, when dealing with this at that level uh, is that you can be in a fight before the first punch is thrown, right? Like you, you, you can be in a scenario where you're going to have to fight for your life or survival or whatever, um, and no one's thrown a punch yet. And in that situation, like if you find yourself in a fight, you don't have to take the first punch, right? To, to, to morally justify it to yourself, right? If, if someone is, you know, blocking your way or, you know, not letting you pass through or pushing you or, or making overt threats, uh, you know, to your, your life or, or you know, uh, threatening you with bodily harm, go ahead and knock them out. Right, you don't have to wait. He's already a threat. He has already indicated a willingness to do harm. Uh, all you have to do is take the first punch and end the threat. We get stuck in this high school, grade school mentality of, you know, the the authority is going to ask you who threw the first punch, and that's who will. That's how it's determined. Like who is at fault for the conflict, and that couldn't be further from the truth, right? If you're getting bullied and they're demanding your lunch money every day, and you turn over the lunch money every day, like the punch isn't thrown, right? If they block your access, you know, to, to get in or out of the building, right? And the punch isn't thrown, and you just, yeah, I, just, I guess I'm stuck here, you know, until I comply with what their demands are. No, 
there is already a conflict. They have started the conflict. You are in a fight at that moment, uh, and you can do what it takes to remove yourself from that, you know, from that situation, including throwing the first punch, because the conflict is already there. The fight has already begun. You are, you are now in the fight um, doing what you have to do for survival. Uh, the other thing I want to point out with this article is, you know, the, the term useful idiots, right? The term useful is in there. Just because they are useful and they are idiots doesn't mean they cannot be our useful idiots. Um, I had, a, you know, this is a, a long-standing conversation with some freedom-loving individuals and they go like, well, the, the problem is with these useful idiots is they're so wishy-washy that they'll, they'll go one way today and they'll go one way tomorrow um, and you'll never, you'll never convince them to stay on the side of freedom uh, because they act on emotion rather than logic and reason. And I go, fine. Well, then appeal to their emotions and just get them to do what we want, right? If, you're, if your goal is like to vote your way to more freedom, uh, then figure out a way to get these useful idiots on your side, Right? Just, you know, if, if you're the libertarian candidate or whatever, like, you know, I've said this in the past and I'm on record, lie, lie to the useful idiots, right? Lie to the useful idiots and be truthful to whom are those that are already on your side, right? The, the, the unwashed masses are used to being lied to by politicians. It's an accepted part of the game, right? They already are being told what they want to hear by Republicans and Democrats, and then they go off and do their own thing anyway, it's about time that they're told what they want to hear by libertarians. And then when libertarians are elected to power, maybe, hopefully, right, fingers crossed if this strategy works, um, they can enact those freedom-minded policies, right, and then demonstrate to these unwashed masses, these people, hey, look, the ideas of, and freedom and liberty uh, are practical and you are better off because of it. And maybe they will change and become more principled. But even if they don't, right, when re-election comes around, lie to them again, right? Whatever it takes to keep them useful uh, from your point of view. Now, if you're talking about, you know, the violent overthrow of the state, right, uh, get these useful idiots on board, right? The, you know, we talked about the, the FBI's history of, of patsies and, and infiltration, uh, over the course of the show last week, it's a strategy that works. Why not infiltrate these useful idiots uh, and get them to, you know, do things on their own that benefit you in the course of freedom and liberty, right? Uh, we, you know, those of us who want to enjoy our freedoms and liberties need not be on the front line of some violent encounter, right? Uh, yeah, I said this during the, the, the riots and the... Uh, burnings of the buildings and the, the whole Black Lives Matter, anti-police, you know, defund the police and occupy, uh, autonomous zone situations, right? There is already a group out there that wants to fight the system violently. Like, use them. They're useful idiots. Put them on the front lines, right? And then after they clash with whomever our other enemy is, um, then it'd be easy to pick the bones and pick off what's left without wasting a whole bunch of like freedom and liberty minded lives in the fight. Uh, it can be done because it has been done. Like what I'm suggesting is not new theory. It's what the occupiers, the state, the oppressors already do, right? It's, it's, a, it's a strategic practice that has a history of success when done by our opposition, and yet again, for whatever reason, you know, liberty-minded, freedom-minded, like, oh, we, we can't do that. We've got morals and ethics to stand upon, and what makes us different from them is that we will always be principled, even in defeat. And, all right, well, then keep losing, right? If, you, if, you, if you're not willing to, like, utilize the winning tactics uh, to accomplish a strategic goal, well, then, yeah, just say we're the losers, and I don't know which is worse, right? Being the useful idiot or being dumber than the useful idiot by not even putting up a, a, a fight in that respect. It's important to understand, uh, like the article says, the, the love of the cage, that these people uh, don't want freedom. They don't want liberty. 
They just don't want you to have it either. And I think one of the false mindsets going forward is, you know, like the article said, uh, is that we want liberty and freedom for all and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to give everyone freedom. Well, they don't want it, right? There's, there's, you know, there's no demand for freedom amongst those people. So you being the supplier and the provider of it, it does nothing for them. It, it causes them to be, it causes you to be their opposition because you're trying to take away uh, their safety and their security and, and their slavery. And if they don't want, if they don't want to be set free, then they shouldn't have to be set free. And you shouldn't have to set them free to experience freedom on your own. So if you can get away from that, you know, the, uh, that savior complex of having to set everyone else free, just do whatever needs to be done to set you and yours free, right? Your, your, yourself, your family, your community, uh, your, your like-minded freedom lovers, right? Let us all get together uh, and be free and away from these people because if they you know if if they're going to be the ones who come back and try to take our freedoms away from us well then we have to be able to defend against that and it's easy defense is always easier with the collective it's one of the again another one of the reasons why the state collective does so well in violent conflict because they always have the numbers and if they don't have the numbers they don't act right it's it's hard uh, when 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 the cops come to pull you over, they bring backup. You don't have backup. You're outnumbered. What are you going to do? Nothing, right? When they when they come to you know when they come door to door to take your guns away, uh, like they did during Hurricane Katrina, right? It's you versus five of them, right? They're prepared for battle. What were you prepared to do? Nothing. You just you turn it in, go away. Uh, what we did see during the the Bundy Ranch situation is when there was a collective defense, right? And the threat could turn into actual violence. Uh, the people that just want to get home to their families, right, tend not to start the fight, right? They went, eh, we'll pack it up and come back another day. Because defense is one of those things that, to be effective, needs to be collective. And that doesn't necessarily mean coerced or state-mandated or state-enforced or a government, perhaps. Uh, it just means that if you and, a, and your neighbors get together, Right, and so like, nope, we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder for each other because we each have each other's back like a community. Um, then you can put up that collective defense. But don't think that you have to set the others free in order to do so. Like I said before, use them to your advantage, right? You know, convince them by appealing to their emotions since they can't be reasoned with and don't understand logic. Find an argument that appeals to their emotion and gets them to stand shoulder to shoulder to you for now, right? Doesn't have to be forever. If it works out, then they come around, right, through education and repetition that, you know, freedom and liberty works. Then somewhere down the line, maybe, sure, they come to your side naturally, organically. But for now, trick them. Just anything to get them on your side uh, so that you can put up that collective defense against those who would oppress you otherwise. All right, let's move along. Uh, next headline, and again, this headline kind of ties in a little bit uh, to, you know, the, the headline is they're normalizing robot police by calling them dogs. So again, another strategy by those in charge, right, the, those that would oppress you to move the line, uh, move the, you know, the, the line of acceptable speech, I guess, right, you, you know, bringing in robots now, but normalizing that sort of activity so that it becomes commonplace, right? You know, it, it's weird to think back on, you know, 9-11, uh, it's like 20 years ago. Uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on like the 20-year anniversary of it. And there are people, you know, the, the youngins now, the people becoming adults now, who have never known a world without the TSA. It's just that's what happens at the airport. That has always been what happens at the airport, so now that behavior, which was odd and that, you know, we uh, rebelled against and fought against and, you know, petitioned against is now commonplace, right? It is now a part of society um, and it is just accepted as it always was. Um, and the next generation, because it is always what it's been to them, will not put up a fight against it and tyranny moves ever closer to their side. And now they're doing the same with robot police. 
in Hawaii, no less. Hawaii police are defending their use of pandemic relief funds for a robotic police dog made by Boston Dynamics, which scans homeless people's eyes to see if they have a fever. If you're homeless and looking for a temporary shelter in Hawaii's capital, expect a visit from the robotic police dog that will scan your eye to make sure you don't have a fever, says the new report from the Associated Press. That's just one of the ways public safety agencies are starting to use SPOT, the best known of a new commercial category of robots that trot around with animal-like agility. Acting Lieutenant Joseph O'Neill of the Honolulu Police Department's Community Outreach Unit defended the robot's use in a media demonstration earlier this year, AP reports. He said it has protected officers, shelter staff, and residents by scanning body temperatures between mealtimes at a shelter where homeless people could quarantine and get tested for COVID-19. The robot is also used to remotely interview individuals who have tested positive. Hawaii Department, uh, Hawaii Police Department started using Boston Dynamic Robot Dogs in order to avoid any unnecessary social contact amid the pandemic. This has understandably elicited criticism from civil rights advocates. Because these people are houseless, it's considered okay to do that, Hawaii ACLU Director Zhang Wook Kim told AP. At some point, it will come out against for some different use after the pandemic is over. This report comes just days after we learn that police in Winnipeg have also obtained a spot robot, which they intend to use in hostage situations. Winnipeg Free Press reports, The Winnipeg Police Services is set to acquire a pricey dog-shaped robot to be used in hostage situations that's already been ditched by police in New York City. Spot is made by Boston Dynamics, which sells the device for $74,500. Winnipeg police are spending $257,000 to acquire and use Spot. The 72-kilogram robot has the ability to navigate obstacles, uneven terrain, and situations where our traditional robot platforms can't go into, uh, said Inspector Brian Milne at a news conference Wednesday. Months earlier, the New York City Police Department canceled its lease for the same type of robot they obtained last year following public outcry from the AP. The expensive machine arrived with little public notice or explanation, police officials said, and was deployed to already over-policed public housing. Use of the high-tech canine also clashed with Black Lives Matter calls to defund police operations and reinvest in other priorities. The company that makes the robots, Boston Dynamics, said it learned from the New York fiasco and is trying to do a better job of explaining to the public and its customers what Spot can and cannot do. That's become increasingly important as Boston Dynamics becomes part of South Korean car maker Hyundai Motor Company, which in June closed an $880 million deal for controlling stake in the robotics firm. Winnipeg police acquired controversial robots dog. To be absolutely clear, there is not actual actually any legitimate reason for any normal person to refer to these machines as a robotic dog or a high-tech canine or by its cutesy cliche name for a pet these are robots robots that are being used by police forces on civilian populations if the robots being used had two legs or eight they would not be able to apply such cuddly wuddly labels and police alarm bells would be going off a lot louder which of course is the idea as AP noted above, Boston Dynamics is acutely aware that it has a PR situation on its hands and needs to manage public perception if it wants to mainstream the use of these machines and make a lot of money. Because it's a known fact that Westerners tend to be a lot more sympathetic to dogs than even to other humans, arbitrarily branding a quadru uh, quadruped, pedal, excuse me, arbitrarily branding a quadrupedal enforcement robot, a dog, helps facilitate this agenda. On the ground, robot policing is becoming normalized today under the justification of COVID-19 precautions in the same way police around the world have normalized the use of drones to police coronavirus restrictions at the same time police departments are rolling out dystopian systems for predicting future criminality using computer programs and databases. This is all happening as the French army is testing these spot robots for use in combat situations. Years after the Pentagon requested the development of a multi-robot pursuit system which can search for and detect a non-cooperative human subject, like a pack of dogs, new scientist Paul Marks reported the latter development back in 2008. Steve Wright of Leeds Metro uh, Metropolitan University is an expert on police and military technologies and last year correctly predicted this pack-hunting mode of operation would happen.
The giveaway here is the phrase, a non-cooperative human subject, he told me. What we have here is the beginnings of something designed to enable robots to hunt down humans like a pack of dogs. Once the software is perfected, we can reasonably anticipate that they will become autonomous and become armed. We can also expect such systems to be equipped with human detection and tracking devices, including sensors which detect human breath and the radio waves associated with human heartbeat. These are technologies already developed. These developments always elicit nervous jokes about Terminator movies and the idea of Skynet robots going rogue and enslaving humanity. But the far more realistic and immediate concern is the technology being used on humans by other humans. For as long as there have been governments and rulers, there have been an acute awareness in elite circles that the public vastly outnumber those who rule over them and could easily overwhelm them and oust them if they ever decided to. Many tools have been implemented to address this problem. From public displays of cruelty to keep the public cowed and obedient to the circulation of propaganda and power-serving religious doctrines, but at no time has any power structure in history ever produced a guaranteed protection against the possibility of being overthrown by their subjects who vastly outnumber them. The powerful have also been long aware that robots and drone technology can offer such a protection. Once the legal and technological infrastructure for robotic security systems has been rolled out, all revolutionary theory that's ever been written goes right out the window, because the proletariat cannot rise up and overthrow their oppressors if their oppressors control technologies which enable them to quash any revolution using a small security team of operators. Or better yet, a fully automated technologies which can fire upon civilians without the risk of human sympathy taking the side of the people. According to a recent UN reports, a Turkish-made drone may have been the first ever to attack humans with deadly force without being specifically ordered to, uh, Live Science reports. At least one autonomous drone operated by artificial intelligence may have killed people for the first time last year in Libya without any human consulted prior to the attack, according to the UN report. According to the March report from the UN panel of experts in Libya, lethal autonomous aircraft may have hunted down and remotely engaged soldiers and convoys fighting for Libyan general Khalifa Haftar. It's not clear who exactly deployed these killer robots, though remnants of one such machine found in Libya came from the Cargo 2 drone, which is made by Turkish military contractor STM. So at this point, we're essentially looking at a race to see if the oligarchic empire can manufacture the necessary environment to allow the use of robotic security forces to lock their power in place forever before the masses get fed up with the increased inequalities and abuses of the status quo and decide for a better system into existence. What a time to be alive! This is another one that would be easily chalked up to crackpot conspiracy theories uh, by certain groups of people right? They, they would never use the, the, the robots for that purpose until they can, and then they are, right? That's, a, that's, a, that's another uh, Ernest Hancock quote. If they can, then they are, right? If, if, if they're allowed the technology and they, the technology allows them to do certain things, you can, be, you can rest assured that they are using it for those purposes. Um, the, other, you know, the, the other thing that's come out this week, we didn't really talk about it, um, on this show is the Apple launching their app or whatever with the new uh, iOS update that scans your photo library to see if there's you know child pornography or child abuse on your phone and allegedly right you know d- depending on who you believe um, they're not actually looking at the photos on your phone right they're, they're scanning it the give it a little fingerprint and then they match that with you know a known database of certain things to catch you know child predators well they announced this in advance right so anyone who's already engaged in that type of activity is already being notified to stop using apple devices or don't use icloud or whatever to get away with these you know to get away with their nefarious acts right which means the only people whose devices are going to be scanned are those who aren't involved in child abuse or child sex slavery or, or, you know, um, or child pornography in the slightest, right? Those people, just like you know, uh, you know, criminalizing already bad things, right? Those people are going to find a way around it, and they are going to get away with it. Meanwhile, those people unaware 
of that sort of thing, right, will have their phone scanned, you know, like, you know, teenagers sharing pictures with each other. If, if that does, if they start on the database, not a problem until it is right. And until they start scanning pictures and creating their own database, right. Based off the photos that you scan to see, you know, so they can track your fingerprints across whatever device, right. Doesn't have to, doesn't have to be, uh, verified against the child pornography database they can just create a database with all the fingerprints of all the pictures uh, and you know and track it that way and then do whatever they want with it right one of the things that was pointed out with the nefarious purpose there is that they can plant pictures right if they have if they have access to your photos uh, on your phone or on the iCloud or whatever um, through whatever backdoor they're using to, to do the scans then they can put things on there right and, and knowing people who have been uh, pursued and uh, attacked by the FBI, it is not uncommon or unlikely that this is not how they'll operate, right? They will absolutely plant evidence if they're trying to take someone down. Just like in the first article where they, they use the useful idiots, they will do whatever it takes to get whatever end result they want so long as they believe that they can get away with it. And it is up to us, again, to fight that. So when it comes to these, you know, these robot drones and robot police dogs, uh, it is imperative to fight against it now, right? Whether, whether they're cute and, oh, they call it Spot and, you know, like the, the article said Cuddly Wuddly. Uh, no, they're, they're robot police, right? This is, this is the bad robot from RoboCop, essentially, right? That it will soon become autonomous and who knows how it will malfunction or whatever in the future, um, at least with RoboCop, right? There was like the human brain involved. So it had some human uh, element to it. Not with Spot. Spot is just a robot, an autonomous robot that will get, you know, will get more technologically advanced as we move forward and do any number of things that they can, that, that they can program it to do. Uh, like the article said, May, what's next? Uh, autonomous policing and, you know, weapons management with these, with these things? No, like get, get rid of it now. Um, because you don't you don't want them to have the technology that can harm you, right? You know, the, the Second Amendment advocates out there are like, well, we should have them too. Yeah, you absolutely should. So if if you want to fight the you know police, if you want to have a robot on robot war, and you have the funds to do it, by all means. But guess what? The reason they have the funds to buy these things is because you've already given it to them, right? They they don't have the funds to do this on their own. They're not voluntarily acquiring. Uh, millions of dollars a year uh, in order to in order to oppress the population they steal from the population then buy the tools of oppression to oppress them with and it is up to you the freedom lover the, you know the the liberty-minded individual the anarchist the libertarian whatever you want to call yourself uh, to not fund your own oppression to start right if, if you want to start fighting back you got to stem the tide somewhere uh, withhold your taxes as much as as much as you can feasibly do so uh, i know that gets difficult right when you when you go to the gas pump it's like well you, you got to buy the gas right how you get you know how you get tax-free gas i don't know it's already built into the price but wherever wherever you can wherever is you know convenient for you to withhold your tax fundings don't give them more because they only use it to oppress you right and, you know de defund the police uh not just because the police are oppressive, but because they steal from you in order to do that, to do those oppressive acts. So yes, defund the police, defund the state, defund the government, um, let them get productive jobs if they so choose to. Otherwise, just cease to exist or leave us alone or however, you know, whatever works. Uh, but definitely, even if you're considered a conspiracy theorist, right, or a crackpot or a kook or whatever, it's definitely the time, uh, much like the New York pushback, to push back against these robot dogs, spots, these, you know, robot police, uh, you know, the, these tools of oppression. It is now time to push back against them um, and vandalize or monkey wrench if you can, right? Like if, if, you, if, you, if you see one of these things and you can get away with it, put it out of commission, right? We don't need tools of oppression monitoring the streets in lieu of, you know, human oppressors, right? If, 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 you're, if you're a human oppressor and you want to oppress the people, put your neck on the line, right? You come out and do it. 
and you see how far you can get away with it before your life is in jeopardy, right? You do it with these robot dogs, the oppressors don't have any skin in the game, their neck is not out on the line, and it always should be, right? Uh, you know, violent, peaceful revolution, violent revolution, however it is, those that oppress us, those that oppress you, need to have some skin in the game and they need to realize that they have skin in the game. Um, one of the things that, you know, works here, even though it's non-threatening and non-violent uh, here in New Hampshire, is the, you know, the, the constant protest outside the governor's house when he does something dumb, right? Uh, it just it shows him that we are not, we, that we are paying attention, that we're not going to just take what he says at face value or, you know, with a grain of salt or whatever, but that he has skin in the game, right? He cannot make decisions without pushback from those that would protest. And when it came to the, you know, the COVID lockdowns here, I think, I believe that that played a very important role in his toothless uh, gubernatorial edicts and orders from his excellency, right? I, I talked a little bit this, about this on, on Free Talk Live. Um, he, put the, he put a mask mandate, statewide mask mandate, but he left so many loopholes because he knew that the outrage and the protest and the pushback would have been too great if he had not given those that want freedom, those of us that you know, are here for liberty and freedom, an out, right? So he put the mandate in order. The useful idiots will follow the mandate. The businesses who need to comply with the state will do whatever they can to enforce the mandate as best they can. Uh, but for those who truly value freedom and liberty, here's your excuse so you don't have to comply at all, right? Built into the order just for us. And I, I believe that was there because he's got skin in the game with the protests um, that show up outside of his office, outside of his home, wherever he is, there's always something going on to push back against him. So he knows, you know, he knows that he can't do this type of thing yet without some sort of pushback. And if it's happening in your area, push back however you can up to and including decommissioning these things uh, if you can get away with it. I'm saying if you can get away with it, because who knows what's going to be in the area, uh, you know, wear a mask, right? Take the shot from afar, whatever, whatever works for you. Uh, just don't let the, don't let this grow simply because you think it's a cute little robot dog uh, and not a robot oppressor, right? It may look cute. It's still your oppressor. And that's the message that we're trying to get across here. Moving on. All right. This next headline kind of ties in with the last one when it comes to, uh, Creating new technologies from Mises.org. The seen and the unseen of government R&D. GPS, the internet, airbags, these wonders of modernity have something in common. Without government, many commentators hold they wouldn't exist. And perhaps these voices are right. Take GPS, developed by the Department of Defense to enhance coordination among military units. At first, the sole province of government, GPS found its way into civilian hands and by the 1990s, private sector demands far outstripped military use. Similarly, the Internet was born of Cold War efforts to best the Soviets in the ongoing space race and airbags. Likewise, a descendant of government, military, and space-related efforts, the off-sited Trinity, Tang, Teflon, and Velcro of public sector innovation successfully trickling to the private sector is in fact a myth. Mythologies aside, real success stories remain. And if government can accidentally shower us with such benef beneficence, how much more can effectively might targeted public innovation efforts be? Cheerleaders of, publics, of publicity spearheaded innovation like Mariana Mazzucato make the argument. She contends that government has and should play a major role in shaping markets, which would fail to generate groundbreaking innovations on their own. A similar sentiment lurks behind the United States Innovation and Competition Act of 2021, commonly referred to by its former name, the Endless Frontier Act, EFA. Sponsored by Senators Chuck Schumer and Todd Young, the EFA is a bipartisan bill that provides $110 billion for technology research and development, R&D, over a five-year window. Unsurprisingly, Mazzucato is a fan, tweeting, Endless Frontier Act hits the right buttons for an innovation-led, sustainable economy. Big investment in cutting-edge R&D and manufacturing, mission-oriented market shaping a la DARPA, empowering regions, future-proofing workforce, especially the disadvantaged, bravo. 
Countless Americans will no doubt find the argument of Schumer, Young, and Moscato to be compelling ones. But they won't be thinking like economists if they do. Of course, it's true, obvious even, that when government spends gobs, technical term alert, of taxpayer dollars on X, we tend to get more X. The pharaohs devoted massive quantities of labor and capital to constructing the pyramids, and the result was a series of monuments so spectacular that we marvel at them millennia removed. The fact that we don't always get more X speaks to government's unparalleled ability to spill water from the proverbial bucket between the well and the drinking trough. Yet, if economists know anything, it is that we must count the cost. GPS, the internet, airbags, pyramids, and whatever the proposed EFA might create and easily, are easily seen. But what is unseen? When government spends on labor, scientists, engineers, etc., and capital goods, machinery, scientific ex- equipment, etc., it effectively removes those inputs from productive private sector enterprise. The innovations which see these productive factors might have yielded never materialize. What we gave up developing GPS might have been even more valuable. Government-led innovation might thus seem like a wash at best. Not the boon its proponents allege, but hardly a catalyst for impoverishment. Except this view overlooks two main reasons why leaving resources in private hands outperforms bureaucratic resource allocation. This perspective also overlooks government's demonstrated water-sloshing tendencies. Private sector entrepreneurs must negotiate the same trade-offs that their bureaucratic counterparts face. When entrepreneurs hire laborers and capital goods, they deprive other users of these goods' benefits. Unlike the public sector counterparts, though, private entrepreneurs have a guide which allows them to identify the most valuable use of those resources. That guide is the price system. Consider platinum, a productive input trading at $1,153 per ounce as of my writing. The fact that platinum commands a high price isn't arbitrary. Rather, it's a reflection of platinum's value in producing jewelry and dental appliances. Any entrepreneur seeking to use platinum elsewhere must identify a consumer demand for platinum that is even more urgent than using the metal for decoration or dentistry. Depriving the world of fripperies and fillings will only be profitable if the entrepreneur uses platinum to satisfy an ever greater unmet human desire. By contrast, when Uncle Sam plays market, he doesn't possess the same guide as his private enterprise analog. The bureaucrat won't be selling the result of his output to, to the buying public, and his inputs are purchased with tax revenues not raised from private investors, putting their capital on the line. Like children playing house, bureaucrats are unlikely to suffer real harms even for bad allocative decisions. They won't go out of business if they squander platinum in endeavors that don't create value for consumers. Even worse, they won't even know whether their pet projects created value or not. Such is the case without recourse to a balance sheet that reports profits and losses. A secondary problem is that politicians don't face the proper incentive to select the most valuable project in the first place. Instead, they face pressures to get reelected, which often means allocating pork to their constituents even if their constituents aren't best suited to make good use of those resources. It's therefore unsurprising that the actual track record of Uncle Sam playing market is a dismal one. While it's easy to fixate on the handful of success stories, the litany of government innovation failures should be enough to sober up even the most enthusiastic proponent of state-backed entrepreneurship. Harvard economist John Lerner documents these failures in the book Boulevard of Broken Dreams, while my co-authors and I point out others in a recent paper. A meta-analysis of the literature reveals that private venue capital almost always outperforms public subsidies in generating innovation of lasting impact. Rather than throwing money at potential innovations which may not confer the net benefits, politicians should think more creatively about why U.S. innovation seems to be slowing. They could begin by taking a long, hard look in the mirror. The last 20 years have seen unprecedented spending by federal government driven largely by war, as well as a steady accretion of regulations which have gummed up U.S. labor markets. Slashing spending would return those resources to the private sector, which possesses the institutional frameworks to steward them well. Freeing up labor markets would make it easier for the brilliant innovator to get off the ground. When the pharaohs played markets, we got the pyramids, but when countless Egyptian children went hungry, When Uncle Sam plays markets, don't be surprised if it yields a few fancy new gadgets. 
but don't get distracted just because they're bright and shiny. Technological or engineering feats aren't synonymous with economic value. How might our lives have been ever better if Uncle Sam had left market making to the entrepreneurs? End of the article. Yeah, there's not much more to be said about this one. It's pretty clear and has been clear for a long time that uh, sometimes they get it right, right? Like with, you know, the GPS, the internet, airbags. But just because they got it right doesn't mean those things would not have existed in some form or fashion anyway, right? Like there, there would have eventually been a need for something beyond paper maps, um, especially, you know, as phone technology increased, right? Like the, the biggest selling point to the iPhone uh, initially or smartphones was the mapping feature, which means you could, you know, the GPS, the mapping functionality of it was already inherently valuable. And I think that would have been true regardless of whether or not GPS was previously invented or not. Same with the internet, right? Communication key, right? You know, cell phone technology or whatever would likely have expanded into something more um, you know, video phones were already in the works and that's, you know, like the zoom, you know, you look at the sci-fi movies of the past and it's all, you know, video phone calls and whatnot. So, you know, eh, just, yeah, like I said, just because they invented it doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been invented, uh, somewhere down the line or maybe even improved upon or done better. Uh, if you, you know, if you start looking at getting out of, uh, intellectual property laws and restrictions. All right. Um, I'm not going to say much more on this one because I wanted to get to one more article before we wrapped it up here. Um, and I'll try to do this one quickly. This is from C4SS checkmate anarchists, uh, human life or excuse me. Humans will always create structure and laws. One objection the anarchist will often hear is that a general set of anarchist principles is appealing in theory. But in practice, human affairs seem to always lead to organized decision-making, the establishment of rules and laws, and consequently, the creation of hierarchy and institutional power. In other words, getting to a state of maximum individual freedom is not for this world, and even if it did happen in one society or another, it would be short-lived experiment. In response to this, some anarchists try to explain why that would not be the case. I will submit here that the critic putting forward this objection is actually correct, but is not much more of an objection to anarchist thought at all. The only way a critic would view this as an objection to anarchist thought, or a proponent would view this as a trap they need to get out of, is that they are incorrectly defining anarchy as a tight blueprint of ideal arrangements and structures in a society, rather than a set of principles and fundamentals that could produce many different structures. So there is nothing incompatible with the assertion presented above and anarchist values. To some degree, all discussion of social organization are about rules and the kind of order one wishes to live under. In this sense, any society is a tendency towards some form of a restriction on behaviors and actions. Put another way, there is no way to live among other human beings or animals if you want to be decent without exerting an absolutist total sense of freedom. Consider voluntarily moving into a community with, for example, restrictions on noise after 11 p.m. That is literally a restriction of your freedom to do one thing or another with your favorite noise-making activities. But it is a restriction one might agree to implicitly or explicitly. If the anarchist endgame was absolute freedom for an individual to do whatever one pleased, regardless of impact on others or the community, anarchists would view this community rule as unacceptable in principle and punching each other in the face and stealing each other's possessions as perfectly acceptable. So, how would an anarchist society move beyond the most rudimentary form of interpersonal relations, production, and trade, and handle non-market interactions or community issues? It would be hard to think of reasons why various forms of social organization, team structures, voting mechanisms, or whatever else would not have some role in the delegation and or rotation of certain duties, and roles through democratic means in non-centralized fashion. Although these structures and hierarchies of knowledge would be entered into voluntarily, and they may not claim the monopoly on force or the exclusive right to throw you in jail, there is no reason to think that there would be no semblance of binding social duties that require one to act or refrain from certain acts in accordance with customs or other community decisions similar to market-oriented agreements and arrangements. The key is how groups and communities come to the decisions that regulate or guide behavior, the use of certain resources, and so on. 
One can imagine a world without states as we know it today and a community within it where important decisions that affect said community are made by the will and whims of the patriarch of the oldest family in it, because it had always been done that way. That would be anarchist in nothing but one way. Alternatively, one can also imagine a community where the crucial non-market decisions are made through means of first gathering community inputs, then encouraging a forum for debate or discussion on the issue, and then finally perhaps putting it to a vote where a two-thirds majority is required for any action. That action could be the creation or adjustment of a rule, the call, of members, uh, the call for members of the community to participate in additional discussion, or it could even be the agreement for a subcommittee to be created for, of a delegation of responsibility to a smaller group. Democratic does not mean casting a ballot or raising your hand on every single item that affects your life. It's about having a form of input and control over those items in some way. Non-centralized does not mean everyone is responsible for every action item. It's about where decision-making power lies. Of course, how exactly different social structures, hierarchies, rules, codes of conduct, and so on would look is not something anarchists can or should attempt to flesh out in detail, though they can think of tendencies or currents. The point is that the cru it is crucial to understand that an anarchist society is one that will tend to some form of organized decision-making, will lead to the creation of certain institutions, and will lead to some form of establishment and adherence to a set of rules and laws. For the anarchist, the challenge is not to refute this claim, but rather to focus on what kind of frameworks enable voluntary, organized decision-making by groups, what kind of social or community institutions can be justified, and what autonomy they could justifiably have, and what rules and laws may look like. Reconciling an understanding of human tendencies toward interaction, cooperation, organization, uh, cooperation, structure creation, delegation, and decision-making, and so on, with anarchist fundamentals, is where the intellectual action is. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, collectivized defense, right? There are certain things that ought to be done by a collective because it is better, more economical, and more efficient to do so that way. Not everything, and if one decides not to participate in the collective defense, right, one should not be coerced into doing so, and one should not be imprisoned or otherwise harmed uh, for, ex for voluntarily excluding themselves. Uh, another thing that, you know, comes up is like how these things will get done and the not focusing on fleshing out the details, right? This is, this is a tactic that the status will use to corner the anarchists, right? Like, well, how would this be done in an anarchist society? And the true answer is we don't know. I don't know. How could you know, right? We have to establish a free society and then let, you know, let the natural tendencies take their course and to flesh it out. Uh, we could give examples of how we would like it to be done, how we think it could be done, uh, but there's no guarantee to say that that's how it will be done, given that, given those constraints. Uh, another, you know, example that comes up is, you know, the fact that as anarchists or, you know, would like some social order or some socialized things, where they go like, well, isn't that just a form of government, right? You want the children to be educated. You want, you know, private schools. How is that different from public schools? Well, it all comes down to the voluntary aspect of it, right? If it's, if it's done voluntarily, I do not object, right? Like I may have uh, moral or ethical ob objections to me participating in those activities, but I do not object to their existence, right? Is when, when force, fraud, or coercion is used to compel people, uh, members of the community, to participate or to fund those activities that I object Right. So when it comes to like, you know, uh, private security, how is that different from a police force? Well, you don't have to pay the private security firm if you don't want to. Right. If you value it, you'll pay. You'll, they'll charge, you know, what they think they can get and you'll pay what you think it's, it's worth. Uh, and hopefully the two, you know, the, the, the two lines cross there and you get you get the service you want. Um, but it's not that we object to that service being provided, just that we object to it being coercively funded. Right, it all it for me. It always comes down to that, or if, if it's funded coercively or violently, um, I object. If I, if violence is used to compel participation, I object. Uh, if it's done voluntarily, right, and if it would be done voluntarily, absent that violence and coercion, then just let it happen voluntarily, and then you'll get more participation and less pushback. You get less objections to it. 
uh, and more acceptance of it if you just let it happen naturally. If it's that valuable, it'll just happen naturally. And so just like, you know, the, the, the anarchist objection to uh, this sort of state forming, well, organization will form, right? Hierarchies may form, um, but the, the, the power to coerce, you know, harm, you know, violate and manipulate uh, to oppress would not be there. And that's the biggest uh, point that I want to make there. And that being said, that is where we are going to wrap it up this time. Uh, you guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, on Telegram, t.me slash anarchistexperience, or t.me slash theanarchistexperience. Uh, hopefully in the next show or two, I believe, we'll be back doing this uh, live on Clubhouse. So you can find us on Clubhouse, uh, the Anarchist Experience, or at me, uh, Riches for Rich, R-I-C-H-E-S, the number four, R-I-C-H. Follow me and you'll get the little notification when I start the club um, or the room in the club. And if you'd like to contribute to the show, you can do so through Patreon, patreon.com slash The Anarchist Experience. Thank you very much for li listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. <laughs>